Index is one of Australia's largest integrated financial services firms with offices around Australia and New Zealand. To learn more about our not-for-profit offering, visit index.com.au. Good morning and welcome to the second in this uh, of the IMAP Independent Thought podcast series. Independent Thought is an opportunity for us to showcase thinking that's emerging from the advice community uh, and focused on uh, managed accounts and serving um, uh, advice clients. Today, we're fortunate enough to be joined by two very senior and experienced um, consultants uh, and advisors. So Greg Barter is senior partner at Findex, and Michael Karagiannis is co-head of the not-for-profit client base within Jana Investments. We're going to be talking today about serving the not-for-profit client base. So Michael and Greg, welcome to to today's session. And and let's start off by just saying, what what are the key challenges in in servicing the not-for-profit market? Who would you like to go first there, Toby? Uh, I'm happy to uh, to make some introductory comments, and I'm sure Greg will, will follow up. Um, so I think uh, it's important to view the not-for-profit market a little differently from the normal uh, advisor market of dealing with mums and dads or even high net worth clients. Not-for-profit clients are very heterogeneous. They're quite different. Uh, there's a lot of divergence between dealing with uh, religious Orders, uh, medical foundations, endowment funds, school bursaries, uh, governments, and so on and so forth. So you really do have to understand the particular market segment very well and understand the particular requirements of that. Uh, and I think that that is a key challenge and, and how you actually tap into that. It is very much uh, relationship-driven, um, so being able to raise your profile and and get to know clients or opportunities within that space and, and get a reputation in that space so that you can get referrals. I think that is a significant challenge for new entrants uh, wanting to move into the not-for-profit space. Uh, Greg, uh, I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, I agree, Michael. And one of the things um, which is, is clearly different is the engagement process, um, where typically the engagement can be via an RFP, which is quite a clinical process, and so it's difficult to build a rapport with the, um, the not-for-profit whom you're um, who you're trying to engage. Um, so my experience is that's more successful, um, as Michael said, the more you understand the actual business and what their objectives are. So um, you, you need to do more than provide a response to an RFP. You need to speak to the stakeholders and you need to make sure you understand exactly what they're trying to achieve and and um, I guess diplomatically um, express how they how they can achieve it um, if their their remit is a little bit off. Often they'll ask for the typical "I want really high returns and and no risks," which of course is unachievable. But you need to make sure you you um, I guess yeah, as I said diplomatically help adjust what their objectives are in in line with what can be achieved. I think another um, point there, which um, is really you know, going to the difference between dealing with a not-for-profit client and, and dealing with an individual client, is you're dealing with an individual client, it's their own wealth, 
Um, you know, you might have one or two stakeholders that you're dealing with there. Um, they're very much focused on managing their own wealth. They're, they're the key decision makers. When you're dealing with a not-for-profit, you've got a multitude of decision makers or potential influences. You've got the board, uh, which might be made up of a range of different skill sets and sophistication. So you, they might have co-opted extremely sophisticated investment people onto the invest, uh, onto the board, but there might also be uh, less sophisticated people. So you really have to understand the dynamic of the board and, and what they're, they're really aiming for and what different people on the board are really looking for. Then you've got to understand perhaps the investment committee, the audit committee, and then maybe, um, you know, people such as, you know, the senior finance officer and, uh, and understand some of the issues that they're grappling with. So unless you get that picture uh, across the breadth of the stakeholders you're likely to be engaging with in the not-for-profit space, you often find that you can get blindsided by, uh, you know, thinking that you might be, you know, well-regarded by one stakeholder within an organisation and, uh, you know, everyone else has really got a very different thought process. Um, so I think that is uh, a key challenge of dealing in this space versus, say, dealing with an individual client. Yeah, I agree, Michael. And one of the, the key points that it, it took me a couple of um, uh, negative experiences to, to realise not-for-profits are typically very stable clients um, because once they've engaged you, they're, um, they're generally committed um, uh, to let you run with, with the investment policy that they have devised. But you've got to be careful. Um, as Michael pointed out, there's many different stakeholders. And as is, the, as is the nature, boards change and you have new individuals and new personalities being introduced. And often they're trying to make their mark within that organisation. Um, so it's, it's very easy for them to question if how the investment piece is going. So you need to be very attuned to that or, or not um, uh, uh, not rest on your laurels about how well your performance has been or how well your your connection with that organisation has been because it's ever-changing and it's, so it's always a new client. It interests me that... A point that you've both made is this sort of range of stakeholders as opposed to individual clients, which might be kind of, you know, Mr. and Mrs. or perhaps even their kids, but you know, just the spread of the spread of stakeholders, both um, you know, professional, for example, you know, the, the doctors involved with the, you know, with the medical charities, and then the the internal members of staff involved in administration. Um, how do you manage that sort of set of different um, expectations and uh, and levels of expertise and and areas of focus? That Michael. is a key challenge, um, and I wouldn't underestimate the 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 difficulties of it. I, anyone who says they've got that one absolutely one hundred percent, I think, uh, as Greg says, you only need to change in a board member or a couple of board members to suddenly find that a. A very safe client you've got a very good relationship with where you feel you understand the stakeholders has suddenly slipped out from underneath you and uh, you know uh, it's, it's producing some surprises I think um, you've got to understand that there are different perspectives um, so for example if you're dealing with the administration team you know the, the the chief financial officer for example and their team often what they're really interested in is what can you do for them that actually makes their life easier so they're looking to you know, uh, unburden themselves. And, and that's why you see in a lot of cases in this uh, not-for-profit space, the tendency towards a lot of uh, charities, and I'm talking probably 
you know, mid-size, maybe hundred to two hundred million dollar charities, even uh, that want to go down the implement consulting path, where they are outsourcing the investment solution as well as the advice to a consultant, um, as opposed to you know very large institutional clients, which may be purely advisory. They're doing their own implementation. A lot of these charities just don't have that ability. They want to outsource that. They don't want to take that on. Um, and so they're looking for what you can do to make their life easier. The board, however, might be you know looking at from a fiduciary point of view and saying, well, you know, we're really keen on um, you know solutions that you know that we can invest in that are going to achieve certain ethical considerations are going to um, provide us with the best returns so that, uh, you know, if anyone's reviewing the annual report, comparing us to other charities, we're going to stand in, in relatively good stead. So you've got to just understand those nuances. But it is a, it's a dynamic landscape. And within individual clients, you can find that over a period of time, the pendulum swings in terms of what particular areas of concern and interest that you need to satisfy. Yeah, how, I, does Findex, uh, how does Findex? Yes, how does Findex deliver its its services? Well, I would, um, yeah, I, I agree with what Michael said, and I think um, you just have to be upfront. So you're going to have a key um, uh, liaison within the organisation, and you really need to ask them what do you want, and you need to document it. So you need to have a strong um, and clear investment policy which has been um, prepared by the organisation for you to work towards. Um, because when we go through those those periods of turmoil, as Michael's saying, where the um, people change and therefore attitudes change, the continuity comes from the investment policy. So you, you're actually able to say, all right, if you want to change these things, maybe it's time for us to review the investment policy. And that way you're included in that, that um, process and that decision-making, I guess, cycle as opposed to being single out as, as the problem why the um, uh, why it, as the, the reason a change is needed or moving from one organisation to another because someone's come up with a new idea. So if you've got the continuity of the investment policy and you'll seem to be the, the I guess, the advisor who assists in um, maintaining and adjusting it, that keeps you in, engaged um, as opposed to it's now time to go in a new direction so we need a new a new need to engage your investment advisors. Um, so I've found that to be um, a, a, a good tool. That, that sort of leads us naturally into thinking about some of the investment considerations. And obviously for many of these groups, ethical or ESG considerations will be um, even more important than they are for the average retail or typical retail client. Um, you know, I welcome your comments on on that part of the investment process. Mm. I mean, this is an area that uh, obviously is very topical broadly across the investment landscape. Um, Jana, I mean, we're dealing with a very wide range of clients from very large institutional clients through to, you know, advice businesses and, and not-for-profits as a sort of in-between uh, market, the mezzanine market, really. But it's um, ethical is, is becoming very topical across the spectrum. I think one of the challenges in the not-for-profit space is that, you know, I talked earlier about uh, not-for-profits being very heterogeneous, that they they really are quite different. Um, and that also feeds through into what they consider to be their ethical requirements. Um, so if you were to contrast, for example, the ethical requirements of a religious 
order that you might deal with. Um, they, they could have a vastly different set of exclusionary requirements compared to, say, a medical research foundation, compared to a government body. Um, and you've really got to not only understand those requirements, so, you know, Greg talked about getting the investment policy down, Pat, or one aspect of that is clearly defining what their ethical considerations are, what's in, what's out, what are they trying to achieve? Are they interested in impact investing? Are they wanting to really focus more on exclusionary investing? Um, but also how to actually deliver that for them. Um, so it's one thing to actually you know, specify that, but how do you actually go and invest it? And that's where I think um, you know, increasingly the ability to offer tailored solutions, and this is where managed accounts uh, can come in and play a role in that uh, you, you have the ability you know, to tailor uh, the, the investment solution and in particular the ethical sleeve of the investment solution uh, through the use of a managed account component. I mean, it might be a direct equity piece within a broader portfolio um, where you've engaged with the, the fund manager and they're able to actually provide you with certain exclusions uh, suitable for that particular client. I think that is really critical in this space. Yeah, I think not-for-profits, it's fair to say, um, have led the the increase in um, SRI and ESG investment. So uh, my suggestion would be if you're looking to become involved in this space, you really need to have a fully booted um, SRI, ESG option. Um, and just echoing what Michael said, when we go through the investment policy, um, ten years ago I wouldn't have had to, I wouldn't have mentioned SRI quite so much, but now going through the investment policy, I consider it a a, a complicit stage in the whole process. Where there's two levels where you'll say what investments are at odds with the not-for-profits um, goals and objectives. So um, so you could exclude those straight away. <clears throat> um, and then on top of that is whether or not they actually have a general um, uh, SRI or ESG um, view um, and how they want to build their portfolio. I think um, because you're, you're talking about um, uh, people collectively um, managing money, which isn't theirs, um, opposed to individuals um, managing their own money, there tends to be a, a collective bias to want to move more towards SRI. So it's it's really critical to have that um, have that capacity to deliver um, if you're looking at this space. To what extent do do the do the not for profits or charities um, want to see in their advisor, you know, the the person of their advisor, you know, personal engagement with their particular um, area of activity. Are you talking about philanthropic support? Specifically? Oh well, yeah. well, I yeah. was thinking of it in a broad. I was thinking of it in a in a broader yeah. sense. There's obviously, a yeah. big range of you know, but yeah, I mean, are they looking yeah, for sort of personal engagement? I, I think um, I think it is important when you look at this space to view it as not simply an investment advisory process that you are looking to engage with not for profits, and they have a range of requirements. One of them is providing an investment advisory and potentially a uh, an implementation of that advisory um, uh, requirement. But the other is how can you help them more broadly in their business? Now, one of the, the key issues 
for most charities in Australia at the moment is how to boost their revenue raising. I mean, we've got an enormous number of charities in Australia. I mean, several hundred thousand, literally. But, you know, if you condense that down to the, some of the larger ones, there's still a large number of charities. And the number one thing they'll often mention is, you know, how can you help us in terms of raising funding, whether it's helping us in terms of application for grants, whether it's helping us in terms of actual uh, fundraising activities, um, how do you engage with us to show that you are you have an interest beyond just simply being an investment advisor to us? So I I, I think that's very important, um, and it it does go to you know how you structure your business to actually support that. Um, so trying to do it you know as you would support a an individual client or, or provide advice to an individual client, I think. You really have to think about it hard in this space because, you know, it smacks to us of requiring a dedicated team with a number of constituent elements to that, you know, expert investment capability, um, advisory capability for this space, the ethical considerations, the philanthropic support that can be provided. So that's that's a quite a few dimensions that you need to bring together within a team, I think, to really attack this market. Yeah. I- to answer the original question, Toby, um, I haven't had a lot of um, requests to invest back in the the industry or the or the focus that that, that not profit not for profit has. It's an interesting question, um, and I think maybe it's because the the pool of money we're looking after is often the reserve, and so they want the diversity away from what they're doing because um, it rather than uh, doubling up from a from from that point of view. Um, so typically, I haven't had that as a, a particular request um, uh, so far. But it's an interesting thing, which I guess it, it speaks to Michael. Uh, where understanding the organisation, it's 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 worth asking that question. And I think the other thing, with if you're using um, as we do, managed discretionary accounts to um, as the implementation for the for the investment portfolios you're building. You need to be able to tailor them, or, or tailor the implementation in in light of what not for profits want. So, if you've got a, a normal mum and dad um, uh, portfolio, uh, if you do a, a quarterly rebalance of the of the investment in line with the the, the MDA, um, that's fine. But I've found that um, not for profits in the committees or the or the decision makers within the organisation want to know more. So, automatically making changes. Um, isn't necessarily the best way to go. You, you still use the MDA from the implementation point of view, but um, it, it's it's better to be able to discuss the intent and the issues with the um, uh, say the risk and audit committee or the or the board or, or whomever are the decision makers before you implement. So I guess that's echoes what Michael was saying is you need to tailor your offering in order to take into account the nuances. Um, that a not-for-profit will have. Okay, so let's let's wrap up then by just saying, okay, well, if I was an adv- if I'm an advisory practice, um, and I'd like to develop the you know the not-for-profit part of of my business, um, what are the things which I would need to uh, be doing or have in place for for that to be a viable business strategy? Um. Yeah, so I think um, 
the danger, and I've seen this before, where advice businesses say, look, we, we, we wouldn't mind targeting the not-for-profit space and they sort of go after it very loosely and, and really don't uh, resource for it. I think what you do need is expertise in the area. You need to insource that or outsource it. You need to have the ability to tap into some expertise that is very familiar with the not-for-profit market. You need to have an investment proposition as Greg mentioned, managed accounts can be very useful in this space, but the ability to tailor and offer a fully outsourced implemented solution, if that's required, to be able to dial the engagement model so that uh, you know clients can have a role to play in terms of the investment decision-making, but then you can go away and implement it very easily and seamlessly for them. So that's really important, the ability to provide them support potentially on the philanthropic side. Don't be scared to potentially partner. Um, so you either need to insource it and build up a, you know, a, a dedicated team, in our view, that's what we've done, but don't be scared to outsource it as well and, and work with others. So we, we do work with a handful of advice practices where they are looking to attack the not-for-profit market and we actually provide services to them uh, in support of that. Um, you know, don't be scared to put your hand up and, and look for that sort of support because, uh, um, you know, you really do need to have, I think, a, a reasonably, you know, strong and sophisticated offering to be successful in this space. Yeah, I think that it speaks to, um, if you look at it from the other side as a not-for-profit, they like to know they're in good company. They like to know that the the advisor who they're dealing with it understands, their, understands their needs, um, has experience in, in what uh, are hot buttons for them. And so that's um, really an echoing, Michael. It, it means you 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 need to develop a service offering which which meets that. Um, you need to work out who your um, your partners are. So in Findex, we've got a um, an association with Crow in, in the audit space. Um, uh, so I often lean on the internal audit guys uh, to help with their, the process and governance in not for profit. So that's a value add. So, um, which you wouldn't do, of course, with the individual client. So, um, you need to, I guess it's tailoring a package or a service to clients, which is very focused on what their needs actually are. Um, and, and and having a reputation in that space is important as well, because um, they just, I guess the, the sense is they like to know <laughs> they're dealing with someone who, who, uh, who knows what they're doing. Um, and that's similar to dealing with individual clients. A lot of clients you'll you'll engage is on the basis of, of referral. It's exactly the same for not for profit, but the the, the reputation reputation building is obviously different. Um, so that's I think that's a, a worthwhile part to consider. And I really echo what Michael's saying. You can't do it half baked. You've really got to try and make sure you've got a dedicated offering um, rather than trying to tack it on to something else you're doing. Thanks very much. Greg Barter from Findex, Michael Karagiannis from JANA. It's been a pleasure for us to talk with you today about the challenges of serving the not-for-profit market. In our next uh, podcast in the Independent Thought Series, we'll be joined by Matthew Khalil of Janice Henderson, and we'll be looking at the use of multi-strategy alternative funds and the role that they can play in the development of managed account portfolios. Michael, Greg, thanks very much for your time today.